Hello, welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Creston. I'm Ben. And today we're going to talk about what developers should know about ops or operations or DevOps, if you like. So, but before we get into that, we usually do a weekend review. So I'll go ahead and start off uh, the weekend review this week. So I actually just released my 300th episode of Scaling Postgres. So that's was quite an <laughs> accomplishment doing, yeah, doing six years of, uh, basically it curates Postgres content on a weekly basis. So it's a weekly show and I've been doing it for six years. So I just had my 300th episode. So that, that was a big milestone. The other thing that's happened is the, there's a little bit of an API rant. So, so I have my own business and I, you know, Ben is, is a co-founder as well. But um, I haven't delegated, it's a small company, I haven't delegated bookkeeping yet. So I still do the bookkeeping for the business in terms of accounting for things. And I kind of get a little, I'm not immediately up on like current with everything. So when the new year comes, I have to do a backlog of a number of months mm -hmm. yeah. of bookkeep, bookkeeping to catch up. So I was, you know, a little bit behind. I haven't set up like a bank to um, QuickBooks transfer. I use QuickBooks. Some people may say, well, that's your first problem. But I haven't set up a transfer <laughs> to do that yet. Um, and I didn't want to start it because it said something about 90 days behind. So, so I'm always at a question at this point. Well, I'm a little bit further than 90 days behind. Will this work? I already know how to account for things now. So I've kind of still been doing things mostly manually. But I said, why don't this thing's got to have an API? So I looked into it and I'm like, what? Yeah, I'm looking for something that's just an API. You give me a security key and I can get my access to my data. I can create new expenses and all sorts of stuff. And then it goes through this whole process. I have to create a program and then it has to get, excuse me, I have to create an app to use the API. And then I need to, they have, I think a store like the Zoom has stores. Right. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> But finally, I was like looking. It's like, what's the easiest thing to? Do? And then I realized, oh, they do CSV imports. I'm like, okay, sweet, I'll use that. But the problem is, they only accept like three columns of data, and who you paid is not one of the required fields, or it, it's not available. Or like, what insanity is this? So. <laughs> It works, but it's it's not great. And then there was the whole issue of trying to get my bank's PDF statements, get the raw data from that. I literally had to use a command line program to convert the PDFs into text because I couldn't mm -hmm. use the PDFs from, from the bank, convert it into text, and then literally copy and paste the relevant data. <laughs> it was insane. I eventually did it, but... I would love just a very simple API to do it. But that's that's kind of the stuff that's happened for me this week. So yeah, a little bit of a rant there. But Ben, so so how how's your week this been? Yeah, it sounds like my week was a little less frustrating than yours. So uh so I I've been working in the past few weeks on a big change at at Honey Badger where we are 
moving our search index. So currently we're using Elasticsearch to service all of our search requests that happen inside the app. And we're moving that over to ClickHouse. So we've been uh, playing with ClickHouse lately and uh, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a, not a relational database, it's an analytical database. So it's great for doing queries against, you know, large sets of data. And uh, yeah, so the past week I've been wrapping that up and I just, uh, just this morning polished off a PR and uh, we've got it deployed to our staging environment. So now it's, it's ready for review and hopefully within the next uh, week or so that'll be deployed. So that ties off about a, about a month of part-time work and uh, I'm pretty excited to get that out there. Yeah, oh, I bet. Yeah, it's that when it's almost at the finish line and there's not another 95% of the finish line, you know, like when you're literally that, that's, yeah. that's the great feeling. It's like, oh, we're super close now. That's cool. All right. So um, for those of you who don't know, this is Ben Curtis. He's the co-founder of Honey Badger. And how would you describe Honey Badger? What's the elevator pitch for that? Yeah, so Honey Badger is a monitoring service for web developers. So we help you monitor the health of your application so you can provide an excellent uh, customer support to your customers. So whether that be exception monitoring, uptime monitoring, cron monitoring, and pretty soon structured logging. Uh, any way you want to monitor application in production, uh, we're here to help you for that. That's great. And I I have been, uh, full disclosure, I have been a customer for years and I very much appreciate Honey Badger awesome. and uh, the service they provide. So, uh, but before we kind of get into the main topic, which is what developers should know about DevOps, also wanted to talk a little bit about your history, kind of like how you get got started in tech or in mm -hmm. programming. Well, like, like I think many people in our community, I'm primarily self-taught when it comes to the tech stuff. Uh, you know, I got my hands on a computer. Uh, the first one was a TRS-80 back in the day and uh, started doing some basic programming, you know, where you copy the stuff out of the little, the magazine that came with the, magazines, the programs yep. you could type in. Yeah, totally. Uh, so that's, that's when I got my start. I guess I was about, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And uh, then uh, eventually graduated to, you know, the, the Intel area and got an 8088 on my desk and uh, did some- Wow, you're Pascal. lucky, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, that was, well, I mean, it was a family computer, right? So, I mean, I, well, I got yeah, some time still, on it, right? Still. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I taught myself some Pascal and, uh, that was a lot of fun. I was in the BBS scene and doing that. And then eventually, you know, progressed and got introduced to Unix and Linux and Perl and PHP and decided I love doing web development. So this was back in the late nineties and, uh, just gone from there. And I've really enjoyed being able to just play with stuff and, uh, and then one day decided, you know what, I, I guess I can get a developer job. And, uh, <laughs> so. Graduated, got a job, uh, moved out to the Seattle area, and uh, been working at web startups ever since. So did you actually get a degree in computer science or something, or something it was, or was it unrelated? No, actually, so um, I was, I was kind of afraid actually going that uh, when I was in, when I was in college, I, I didn't really actually want to be a developer for my job because I thought, you know, I, I really enjoy doing it. It's a great hobby. And if I have that as a job, then I, I think I might not like it anymore, right? I think it might crush my spirit as, as it were. And so I actually started off in English because uh, I wanted to go into technical writing. And, uh, and then I was like, no, I think I want to switch over to computer science. And um, 
turns out I don't like math. <laughs> and uh, when I got to when I got to like the differential uh, equations and stuff, uh, I was like, I'm out. And uh, so I bailed and I went to the, the business program. I went to uh, management information systems. So I went to Louisiana yep. State University. And at the time, the, the IS program was in the business college. And uh, that's where all of the computer science dropouts went. Basically, they went over to IS. <laughs> and uh, that, was a, that was a good choice for me. Um, I mean, I, I missed the algorithms and, and that sort of thing, all the stuff you learn in, in computer science program. Uh, but I really enjoyed the business side. And, uh, and then, like right at the end of my college career, I'm like, you know what? I really enjoy development. They say you should do what you love. So I decided to throw all my plans out the window and uh, get a developer job. So uh, that worked out pretty well, actually. I think that was a good choice. And being self-taught technically, but having the college background on the business side, I think was just a great combination for me. It's, I think it's really worked out well. Yeah, yeah. My degree undergraduate was in biology. In retrospect, I probably, it would have been a better path given the path I've been on to do the, um, like the business information systems or whatever degree it was in, in my uh -huh. school as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I didn't even have it on my radar that that was a thing. I knew I always loved computers. I mean, I, I like biology too, but the computers after I had graduated kind of pulled me back over into, into doing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and things like my sister said, you know, that makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> after I made yeah, I the transition, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think it's it's a it's a there's a lot of overlap there between the hard sciences and uh, you know technical stuff. You don't have to go all the way to computer science, you know, to really enjoy using that analytical part of your brain on tech stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, here's I always loved how understanding how things work. Like I was mm -hmm. getting PC Magazine and all these other words and looking like a book about memory on the as you say eighty eighty eighty. 80, excuse me, 8088 and uh -huh. how that works. And it was no different than understanding how a biological system work and worked and getting down to the nitty gritty. Okay, this is DNA, this is the cell, this is how things, you know. Right. So yeah, it's just the same. So, but in terms of uh, DevOps, you know, because we're going to be talking about DevOps, how did you kind of get into that or start doing more yeah. DevOps related work? Yeah, well, um, a large part of it was because I was broke as a kid. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of cash. And so uh, I got into Linux really early. So we had, I went to uh, uh, the Alabama School of Mathematics and Science, which was a brand new boarding school at the time. And uh, brand new at the time. And what we did there is, you know, it was, it was, a, it was like a college format, but it was the last couple of years of high school. And we got to experiment with a bunch of, stuff that you didn't get in a typical high school in Alabama at the time. So we had a computer lab that was pretty well decked out. We had a wow. blazing fast for the day, 9,600 bits per second modem that was connected to our, to a university that was hundreds of miles away. Right. Which, uh, eventually got upgraded to a T1 line. So we were just, you know, we were blown away with that. Right. Wow. But, uh, but at that Living time, life. <laughs> yeah, at that time, like, uh, I was really interested in, uh, uh MUDs and talkers, yeah. uh, which yep. were a mud without the gaming component, right? And uh, I really wanted to hack on that kind of stuff. And so the only really thing option at the time was you had to learn C and you had to do that on Unix and you had to learn sockets programming. And so I, I just dove in, right? So I got a Linux box set up and I 
as I went through that process, I started using Linux as my daily driver. And you have to learn at the time, you had to learn a whole bunch of system admin stuff just to be able to use your computer, right? You gotta, you gotta be able to connect up X windows and all this kind of stuff and learn how these things work. And so I really got into the whole, what is a network and how do, how does all this stuff work as part of just my passion for, I want to write a talker, you know? (laughs) So I did end up building that talker. It was a lot of fun. And I just kind of stuck with the system admin stuff. So everywhere I went since then, like, um, all, all I spent all my career building on open source, building on Linux, you know, using things like Perl and Ruby and, uh, those open source supported kind of stuff. And, uh, so just like along with the development work, a lot of the system admin work just came along with it. And I think it's been really helpful to me to know, like, what's the platform that I'm building on? Like, how, do, how does the network work? And, uh, so, you know, I, I follow that all the way through. Like I, I had, a one time I had a business where I was doing, uh, consulting for people who were installing networks. So this is back in the Novell network days, you know, where you would go in and build this land out of coax and stuff. And so I got my, I got my, uh, Novell certifications and I was, you know, doing all that. So I just really love all things tech. So not just development, but you know, all the hardware and, and networking stuff. So, um, that's, I think that's, that's how I got me here where I, I really enjoy the blend of the systems and the development on top of the systems. Yeah, I, I'm very similar in that, except I didn't do Linux related stuff. For me, it was wanting to play PC games really early on. And in order to, in order to do that, you had to really understand and precisely configure autoexec bat and config.sys in Microsoft DOS. So I got to be a champ at that and really understanding it. So it was like, in order to, for me to play games, I had to really. and figure things out. And I've worked with Novell Networks as well. Yeah, in certain cases. So yeah, similar experience. That's interesting. So so what to you is DevOps? What is, the, I mean, I think probably in history, it was probably called systems administration, but <laughs> what, yep. what, what do you consider what is DevOps? Yeah, I think I think there there are definitely uh, different opinions out there about what DevOps means, and I think uh, you know, there I think there are a variety of valid opinions. Um, for me, it really is the the fusion of the operating the system, like you have <clears throat> you have the servers that are involved, the network, you know, all the things that go along with that, load balancers and you know firewalls and all that. And you also have the the code, the actual application that you want to run, that you want to deploy, that you want to put in front of customers, right? You know, building an application is one thing, uh, but it's not terribly useful if no one is actually using it, right? So you have to get it in front of people and they have to be able to, it has to be up. And so I think to me, like DevOps is a combination of uh, being able to do the development work, being able to build the things, but also being able to operate the things, being able to get them out there into the world and being able to connect that, uh, you know, all the way from start to, to finish. I think I, we might talk about this a bit more later, but I think like one of the things that's come up with, uh, like with DHH and Rails lately, you know, the, the, the phrase, the one person framework, right. And, you know, that's focused on, you know, that one person can build the app. Well, that's cool. And that's great. But also one person should be able to deploy the app, right. And, uh, maintain it. And so I think, uh, a lot of developers, um, should be interested in the op side, like how does my thing run? Uh, and so I, to me, that's what DevOps is, is just, it just building the app, running the app. Okay. So, and you had also mentioned something to me in, in the time we were speaking beforehand, uh, something about site reliability engineering. So, so what is, is that to you and how is that different from DevOps? 
Yeah, to me, I think uh, the site reliability engineering, the SRE is a fancy label that Google came up with for basically the same idea. I mean, I think if you, if you, you dive into it, you'll see there are differences and there are uh, there are things that are specific to each you know name. But I think in general, it's referencing the same idea. I think the SRE stuff goes more towards the the larger organizations. The we're going to monitor these particular metrics and we're going to have, you know, these particular things in place. And, uh, you know, here's our checklist of uh, uh, things we need to have for our system to be considered, you know, a good production level kind of system. And that that site reliability engineer is there to make sure those those check boxes are ticked, right? And that, you know, developers are meeting the spec that, that their team might put forth so that it will yep. be well supported in production, right? So I think the SRE comes... A little bit more from the systems admin side, and DevOps comes a little more from the dev side. Uh, but you know, they're both, I think, playing in in the same playground. Okay. So, what kind of, I guess, uh, DevOps tools are you using? Like, for example, if you could share, like, what you're using at Honey Badger, or what tool sets have you used even beforehand? Yeah, I think. Uh, you know, I mentioned Linux, Linux before, like I started using that long, long time right. ago, but I yeah. think that's, that's the foundation, right? I think, uh, for all of us who are probably, who are building rails, typically 99% of us are going to be building that on top of a Linux server, right? We might be, uh, using Mac for our desktop, but even that's got Unix Unless under the hood. Unless you're using right? .NET. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, again, that goes back to what I said, how I was broke, right? So I never oh, had no. the money to, to buy licenses and stuff from, from Microsoft. So <laughs> That's why I've been all 100% open source all my all my career. But, um, but I think you know, regardless of what platform you're on, there's still, like you said, there's a bunch of tools that you're going to encounter. The the ones that we use most often at Honey Badger are Terraform and Ansible. So Terraform is a great tool for working with all kinds of uh, cloud and, and other providers on deploying infrastructure. So you can write a configuration file that def defines, you know, what kind of uh, server you want to have running, what kind of uh, firewall you want to have in place, what kind of load balancer needs to be there, and connects all these pieces together into a configuration that you can you can put under version control, you can collaborate on, you can make sure as it changes over time, you're actually tracking those changes, you know, which is which is much better than the alternative that we like to call ClickOps, you know, where you go into the hosting console and you click the button to, to boot up that, that, that digital ocean droplet, right? Or you click the button to add that firewall config, you know, that's, that's fine. And that's good for playing around and stuff. But when you have a, a, a system that you want to have repeatable, that you want to have reliable, that you want to be you know, working with other people on, it's much, much better to have all these, you know, decisions and these, these infrastructure pieces, you know, encoded into a configuration, which we call infrastructure as code, you know, just like you have your your app under Git revision control, you have your system changes under revision control. And uh, another tool that we use at Honey Badger very often is Ansible, which um, there's a bit of overlap there. Um, both Ansible and Terraform can work with like deploying instances and creating firewalls and stuff. But at Honey Badger, we use Ansible more for the system level configuration. Like once you have an EC2 instance running, for example, what do you want to deploy on that thing? Like, well, do you need, do you need to have Ruby installed? Do you need to have some, some logging software installed, monitoring things, what, whatever you want to configure that particular instance to do? That's where Ansible comes in the picture, you know, it installs those packages for you, might install the database server, et cetera. And so these two tools, uh, I think, are great hand in hand to really make the, your deployment process repeatable and well documented. Like 
someone wonders like, what is this system? You know, how does it work? Well, go look at the config. You can read through that and you can see. It's literally, as you say, code. It's the code of your infrastructure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, just to let you know, I actually created a course on Ansible a number of years oh, ago cool. called uh -huh. Discover Ansible that I sold um, because for the longest time, I was basically using bash scripts to right. do the configuration. And then, of course, I was like, all right, I finally got to get my button gear and learn either Chef, Ansible, or what was the other one? Puppet or Puppet, Salt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was like, after looking at all of them, I really like the push ability of Ansible because I think Chef was yeah. more a pull. It pulled from a central repository, whereas mm -hmm. Ansible for me was like more simplistic. And I, hey, I just have the local configuration and I just push what the configuration to be when I when I want to, as opposed to it randomly pull. I, I don't know. In my head, I yeah. was thinking it's going to randomly pull things and I'm not going to be ready or, or something like that. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So, well, and, and and it's great. Ansible is great because if you only have one server, right? If you're not on oh, a exactly. team, you're just yeah. doing your own thing, right? It's just like Capistrano was back in the day where it just you push out the commands to the server, it does the things and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm very familiar with Ansible. And I know Terraform is basically has come over the, I guess, the DevOps scene and mm -hmm. I don't know, taken over, but it's, it seems like Ansible is pushed down a little bit from that configuration perspective. But I guess call me the, the guy with a hammer banging the, <laughs> the same type of nail. I use yeah. Ansible for my provisioning because I, I separate, I guess I'll call it configuration of the servers themselves and then provisioning, actually bringing up a server, configuring the network. As right. you said, Ansible can do all of that. I've kind of stuck with that. So I haven't dedicated time to learn Terraform yet, although mm -hmm. I'll probably have to at some point. Um, yeah, but it, it's hard because I am the guy running, well, not quite a solo SaaS, but basically I have to be able to do almost everything from front end to back end the database to the systems administration. So yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, that, that full stack engineer, that's kind of what my head is. Exactly. So exactly. I have to selectively choose what I choose to work on and know. And even, so that's why I'm late to certain parties, like <laughs> the, the move mm -hmm. to Terraform that's happened. So what was it like for you? Have you always been using Ansible and did Terraform, I guess, when did you start using Terraform and what convinced you to say like, hey, we should start using this for provisioning versus something else? Yeah, yeah. I started with Chef back in the day. That was awesome. I think I think Ezra introduced me to Chef. Uh, I think many of us in the, in the Ruby and Rails communities uh, got introduced to Chef that way. And that was when I really got in the whole notion of like this, this being able to do these repeatable configurations, a good thing. And then over time, like, uh, Chef just got, it felt to me just too big. And like you said, you had to have the server that was running and pulling things down. Yeah. It just felt, felt like too much. And then Ansible was a great, I think, response to that. And I really, I, I used Ansible exclusively for quite a while. Really enjoyed that. Um, but I think what really got me moved over to Terraform was um, two things. One, like, um, uh, this is kind of a, a minor thing, but it it is a friction point. And that's with, with Ansible written in Python. You do have to have your Python 
environment stable, right? <laughs> you do have times, I mean, we all know what it's like to install the new version of Python and all of a sudden dependencies are broken. Then you got to do pip and you got, you know, same, same thing in the Ruby world that happens there too. Um, so that's one little minor friction point. Like I, I say a little, I say a little prayer every time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it gets I'm very broken. familiar like, oh. with, yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar yeah. with Ruby, but stepping into the Python world, I'm like, oh, please, everything work. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, so one benefit that Terraform has is that it's written in Go, and so it compiles, and like it's gonna work, right? It's you don't have to worry about okay. the, the okay. dependency things. Um, and then the other thing is uh, when it really came down to when I was working with other people on the team, when we were multiple people working in this scenario, um, Terraform is great because you it ha it keeps the local state of what's deployed in a local state file. Um, Ansible doesn't do this, right? And uh, some other systems do and some don't. It's just a matter of, you know, what's the preference. Ansible always runs the commands to make sure that the whatever you want ends up happening, right? Uh, and then if it, it has checks in place, so let's say you want to install a new package and you tell Ansible, okay, make sure that the MySQL client package is installed. Um, so it'll, it'll run, it'll go onto the server, it'll do the SSH bit, it'll check to see if that package is already installed and if it's the right version. And if not, and if it is, Okay, just skips that step, right? If yep, it's not, yep. then it'll install the package. But um, the way Terraform works is actually when it does a thing, it keeps that state. Now it's it saves that. It's like, oh, I deployed this firewall, and now I've got a record locally that I have deployed that firewall, so I don't have to deploy it again. So you know, the next time I run, I'll check and see is that firewall still deployed? Is it still have the same configuration as what I expected when I saved it last time? Then I won't do anything, right? Uh, so Terraform can save that state remotely. Right, so it can put it up on S3. You can use uh, HashiCorp's cloud thing, and Ansible has this too now with Tower. You can save your yeah, configuration yeah. there. And I haven't invested in that. Yeah, yeah, and, a, yeah. and I've invested time in not in terms of money, but time in order to understand if that, exactly. Yeah, where that would work. Yeah. So having that shared state is the other benefit of Terraform. Like I can I can do a run, I can make sure some stuff is ready, and then I can go away and one of my teammates can come in, they can, you know, change something, they can do a run and they can see, oh, okay, here's the changes that are going to go into the environment. One of the benefits of having that state is Terraform can tell you ahead of time, oh, well, I think I need to do this and that. I'm going to destroy this thing or create that thing. Do you really want me to do that? Right. Um, so to me, that's like the main benefit of, of using Terraform over Ansible is that having that shared state and being able to see, okay, what's, what's going to change because you know that state. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. That's interesting. And I guess we should say when you start using some of these tools, I mean, they're a great benefit from repeat, keeping your systems in a repeatable and known state. So you want to be ultra cautious about trying to log into the server right. <laughs> remotely and fiddling with anything. So I guess we should say, be cautious of that because you may like, do you know what Terraform does in that case? If you like, if it thinks the state, the local state, excuse me, it stores the local state of what it believes exists on the cloud provider, but you like blow away a database or you change the version of some package do you know how mm -hmm. it rectifies it or, or what it? Yeah, for the. <clears throat> if for there's the manual intervention, what does it do? Yeah, for the infrastructure stuff, it will it will try and create it again because it, it disappeared, right? And okay. you can you can refresh the state. You can tell Terraform, you know, go back and see what's out there and refresh the state so I can get it. You know, I, I did some things you should know about um, to get it more in reality. I, I don't ever use Terraform with configuring stuff on a server. 
I always use Ansible right, for right, that. Right, right, right. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, 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 case, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely for that person who like ha is used to the going onto the server and editing things. Um, yeah, it's definitely a bit of discipline to always, oh, always do it in Ansible. Don't, <laughs> don't do it on the server. Yeah. I mean, Ansible does have that diff command so you can actually see what it's going to do before it does it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's much easier if you just always get in the habit of, oh, I'm going to do this change on Ansible and then have it push it out for me. <laughs> Otherwise it'll clobber right. it, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, so I'm assuming that Honey Badger runs on Ruby on Rails. Oh yeah. Is, is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So how do you de deploy new Rails version? I know you mentioned Capistrano. I don't, are you still using Capistrano or how are you doing your new version? Excuse me. You have a new PR you want to push um, up and deploy. How, how does that work now? Yeah. Well, in the in the early days of Honey Badger, we did use Capistrano. Um, we deployed. We had uh, we had a server farm, and we did that. And no, you know, static IPs and all that jazz. Nothing really changed a whole lot. Um, then we moved over to Amazon, and uh, when we did that, uh, when you're when you're hosting EC2 instances on Amazon, you have to be ready for those instances to disappear because uh, Amazon is pretty ruthless about hey, if if something gets degraded, we're going to shut it off. And they they try to give you a warning and be nice about it, but sometimes they don't. Uh, it's actually gotten better over the years. These instances tend to hang around longer than they used to, but still you have to be, you have to have automation in place to handle a server disappearing, which, you know, is not as much of a problem, let's say in, in a, a host environment where you have your server that's actually in a rack, you know, and you're leasing from someone. So, so what we did there was we, we would, uh, have a, a, a what you call an AMI, a machine image that you, yep. you create. And that machine image will get deployed to any new instance that boot. And so we would, we would deploy via Capistrano like normal. And then we would uh, have some code on the machine that would do the Capistrano things when it booted. So we grab the latest code and do all the things that Capistrano did. We had a script that did that for us. So it would, uh, every, periodically we would have a, a fresh image that we would create with the latest code, but you know, over time, uh, codes would happen on master and you wouldn't have those on that image. And so it would just at boot, pull that stuff down and, and do the things that Capistrano did. Uh, these days we've moved away from EC2. Now we're doing ECS, which is uh, AWS's way of, you know, running Docker containers. Yep. So now we have, um, we've, we've built all this infrastructure with Terraform. We've got, you know, the load balancers, we've got the ECS cluster and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we have GitHub actions, which when we do a push to master, you know, it runs the tests, it, uh, compiles the assets, it puts the assets on S3 for us. It builds a new Docker container, a new, a new image, pushes that image to the, uh, Amazon's repository, and then tells, uh, code deploy, uh, go deploy that, that service again. And it, you know, pulls the, the latest image and, and runs the ECS tasks and does all that. So, um, so that's how we do it today. We basically, we're building a new Docker image every time we have a push to master or, or a merge to master. And how is that orchestrated or what tool orchestrates that process to deploy, well, provision and deploy a new Docker container? So that the daily, uh, you know, day-to-day -day deployments, that's all done by code deploy and ECS. So once GitHub Actions has run the tests, we have a workflow that does just the tests. We have a workflow that does, you know, standard and uh, uh, breakman to check for vulnerabilities and things like that. Once all those tests pass, then that triggers another workflow that then does all the deployment steps. So it, it builds the Docker image, it runs the asset compilation, 
it then puts the image up on ECR. So it's all coordinated by GitHub Actions, and then Amazon's own deployment tools. Okay, get GitHub Actions. Okay, to, to do that yep. deployment. Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. Yep. So back what I was saying, um, I kind of keep doing the same thing longer than most. I'm still using <laughs> Capistrano for the majority of my deploys. Uh -huh. uh, basically, uh -huh. Ansible prepares everything, and then I just use Ansible to deploy it. I have dipped my toes into containers. I haven't actually started using them for my infrastructure yet. Um, you know, I, I've, I've used some was it LXC containers from Ubuntu? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with those? Yep. So those have been super easy to deal with. And then I said, all right, I got to learn Docker because that's pretty much what everybody's else is using. Yep. And I've used the LXC containers for years and it's pretty simple to use and I haven't had a problem with it. And then I started trying to use Docker and the level of complexity, I, I don't know what it is, at yep. least for Ubuntu, um, the amount of packages and services I have to install, I'm like, what? Why do I have to do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, for the longest time, I was the same way. Not not a fan of Docker, and uh, I, I I love Capistrano and just pushing stuff up and, and Ansible and that sort of thing. But what really what really sold me on using getting finally getting over the hump and and converting to Docker was um, you know I mentioned we we would build these machine images periodically. And yep. uh, on AC that we were running, and the the thing that got frustrating was uh, new versions of Ruby. So, we, what I have to, my process was I'd have to boot up an instance, upgrade Ruby on that instance, you know, deploy our app to it, and make sure it all bundled properly, right? And then burn a new image, right? And then put that image into our config so that that image would get deployed the next time, you know, we had auto scaling or whatever, and. Yep that whole rigmarole just got really old. Like, you know, I had it down, I had my checklist, but it was still manual process, something I had to do periodically. And, you know, Ruby comes out a new version every year. So you're guaranteed at least once a year doing this thing. And that's if you don't do the dot version upgrade. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And so I just like, I just got tired of it, right? And so with, with the Docker version, it's easier, right? Because you do that locally, you bump your Ruby version and your Docker yep. image. Boom, push that to master and the, the pipeline takes care of it for you. <laughs> yeah. Is there, I mean, I'm not denying that that is the way I should be going. <laughs> <laughs> it's just when I started attempting it, it was like, why is this so complicated? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think the problem is I had early exposure to the LXC containers and they were so easy to use and work with. And then yeah, they want to be install all these. And then... <laughs> The cherry on top was after I installed Docker, all my LXC containers stopped working. Oh, yeah. And there was actually a networking change that was in there and someone had posted, it's been present for years where, I can't remember what it was, but there's some network change that Docker specifies that breaks the LXC containers on Ubuntu. So I'm mm -hmm. like, wasn't that just great? Well, that's great for to get rid of your competition, but okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, so, so I'm definitely going to eventually be moving to that path. And I'm really interested in the stuff that 37 Signals is doing with mm -hmm. what used to be called Maersk and is now Kamal. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar 
yeah, uh, yeah. If you kept up with some of that, um, yeah, a little bit, yeah. So it's base. It looks like a simpler way to do container working with containers in terms of deployment. So I'm I'm definitely going to be looking looking into that. Mm -hmm. um, but so presumably you don't need or are you, is is ECS essentially Kubernetes? Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Um, ECS, um, there, there's actually two flavors. Uh, I, I'm talking about the Fargate flavor of ECS. There's another one where uh, the ECS, where you actually run your own EC2 instances, and then ECS is just the orchestrator for running your tasks on your okay. instances. Um, that's typically when people are talking about ECS, they're not talking about that one. They're talking about the Fargate one, which is basically like they provide the compute resources. You just give them the, the container and they run it, right? You don't have to worry about yeah, the yeah, yeah. instances at all. So yeah, so yeah, it's very much, it, it, it predates Kubernetes. And um, now Amazon has um, EKS, which is their hosted Kubernetes service for you. Um, but yeah, okay. you can think of ECS a lot all like right. Kubernetes, being just the coordinator, the orchestrator for your containers. Yep. Okay, but it's, all right, so it's not, it's like Kubernetes, but it's not Kubernetes. That exactly. the Kubernetes service is EKS. Okay, so yep. I haven't even invested time into this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's no shortage of services to buy from Amazon. <laughs> so, so with regard to deployment, what what do you think developers should be thinking about? Like, if someone has a new app they're going to deploy, what is the path you would recommend it at this point? Yeah, with the we state of today. You know, the simplest possible path is still, even 10 years later, is still Heroku, right? Where you, you get push and your code yep. is now magically on the internet. And I think for someone who is, you know, just starting out, doesn't know anything about anything, that's a great way to go, right? Um, the problem comes when you actually want to scale that because it gets pretty pricey pretty quickly. And so what you see a lot of times is people get some traction, they get, their app is great, it's got some scaling, and now they're like, wait, now I'm spending too much money, How, what can I look at, right? And I think for people who want to, to to mimic that experience of just doing a Git push, I think one great thing to look into is Doku, um, D-O-K-K-U. And it's basically, it's your own um, platform as a service, basically running on your own instances. So you, you deploy this to your Ubuntu instance, and now you can Git push. And that's fun. Uh, that's cool. I know some people using that. Um, if you want to go to the next step where it's like, I'm actually running all my stuff and I know everything that's going on, I'm not just depending on Git push. You know, move over, moving over to AWS, like with ECS, now all I have to do is worry about having a Docker container and that runs it for me. Now there's a whole world of, you know, services you have to be familiar with now with, you know, load balancers and, and all that jazz. So maybe an, an, a better intermediate step is, well, I just, I, I want to spin up a droplet at Ubuntu, uh, at, sorry, DigitalOcean, and I want to get my thing running there. I think Kamal is a great option for that. Um, it gets you introduced to the world of Docker. You, you start building Docker containers and dealing with all the, you know, the learning that goes on there, but it's kind of like Capistrano was back in the day where you just SSH into your, your instance, wherever it's running and it does the magic for you, right? It pulls the container and builds the things and it connects the, the web server for you. Uh, I think that's a great way to go these days for developers who are new to the idea of, of running their own app. Okay. So, um. I guess let's shift for a little bit here and talk about, uh, I, I, 
the things the 37 signals was doing in terms of leaving the cloud because we're talking about different cloud services and oh, then yeah. they're talking yeah, about totally. leaving the cloud mm-hmm. and even i saw the hashtag that uh dhh david hennemeyer hansen started using was hashtag cloud exit <laughs> so so what was your thoughts on i'm assuming you've see, seen it and seen some yeah. of the discussions so what are your thoughts on on kind of that topic well, again, I gotta you know say back to my sysadmin days. Like I, I'm, I'm a big fan of having servers that I can put my hands on and I can see the blinking lights. You know that that harkens back to the the '90s and 2000s for me. I love that, um, and so I can I can understand that just the emotional appeal, the visceral appeal of of that approach. But also, I totally agree with David on. Uh, when you're when you're in Amazon, when you're in Google Cloud, you're going to be spending more. Like the, you're you're paying for the convenience of having elasticity of having you know you can spin up a this huge stack right and then you can tear it all down five minutes later uh, yep. and that comes that comes with a price right we we use that uh well honey badger like because we have big spikes of traffic right all of a sudden we might yep. have 20x yep. the inbound volume that we had five minutes ago and so we need that elasticity but if you don't yes i totally agree you can save a heck of a lot of money if you just have a server running someplace you know when we started honey badger we were not at amazon we were we were at a provider um, that had colo facilities, and so it was kind of a, a kind of a mix between cloud and and your own because it wasn't our own servers. We leased, but we leased actual servers, actual hardware from them, and it was in their rack. And you know, so it was cheap. It was like seventy five bucks a month for a nice fat server, and that got us a long way until we added a second one and a third one, you know, and proceeded that way. Um, so I, I think if you really look at your use case, if you're if you're in Amazon and you're like, you know what, we never scale. We always have just these, you know, two or three instances running and it's always consistent. Yeah, I think it's worth a look to, to see, hey, maybe we can just get a couple servers at a colo facility and save half the money. Um, but at the, on the other hand, if you're really not interested in, in playing with servers, you know, if you don't have the ops team like, like uh, 37 Signals does have, uh, then yeah. maybe it's good to just leave that in the hands of the AWS team or the Heroku team, or you know, just let someone handle that for you. I mean, we we have that same question to a lesser extent at Honey Badger with, uh, for example, database like Postgres. Like we used to run our own Postgres because, again, I like running things and I know how to do it, and so it's no big problem. Uh, even with auto failover and stuff, I I, I built the things that that did, that did that, and it was it was hands off, but. Um, not everyone on the team at Honey Badger knows how to do those things. And so if someone else is on call, they're kind of freaking out if the database goes away, right? So over time, we're like, you know what? It makes sense just to outsource that. Yes, we'll pay more to have a hosted Postgres provider, which we love, by the way, Crunchy Data, shout out to them. Um, yes, it costs more, but like I know that Crunchy Data is paying attention to making sure that database is okay. And nobody on my team has to worry about what happens if there's a failover, right? And are, is that going to work? Yep. Um, so that's that's the trade-off. Like it's fun to run your own servers, um, but that does come with some responsibilities. You know, you, there are cost savings to have, but there's also time savings that you might lose, right? So you just have to, I think it's a very individual decision. Yeah. As I was looking at it, you know, we were thinking, yeah, when you have variable, because we talked about this in previous episodes of the Roboduck Dev Show, and, you know, when when you have variable workloads, like you're saying, suddenly you have huge traffic spikes and you can seamless, well, relatively seamlessly deploy additional servers to help that load, that makes a ton of sense to stay in the cloud or at least go with a hybrid model. The The other thing that in terms of 
making spend more efficiently is the more that, or at least that I've observed, the more that you use their, I guess, value added services, I'll call it. So like, mm -hmm. if you just look for commodity stuff, like just give me an EC2 instance, that's going to be super cheap. If you want to, if, to say, hey, I want you to run the whole database for me and do everything related to that, that's mm -hmm. gonna be more expensive. Setting yep. up a server with a, um, and setting up, oh gosh, what is the load balancer? I can't, the name suddenly escaped me. Anyway. The application load balancer, yeah. Well, no, 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 I'm saying um, an open source load balancer. You get oh. an EC2 instance, you install your mm -hmm. own load balancer. It could be Nginx, yep. but there's there's another, it's escaping my head for a moment. Anyway, that would be much cheaper than their elastic load balancer. Right. right. You know, so I'm just saying the more services that you purchase, the more, you know, costs are going to yep. go up. So if For you sure. can just stick with things that are more commodity that you could easily say, oh, well, I don't want to buy this from Amazon. I want to buy it from Google or I want to buy it from Microsoft or, or something that can that can help with costs as well. So, but, but yeah, it's it's no joke that you get more performance out of your own hardware uh, at, for a cheaper price than you would out of Amazon. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the thing that I keep thinking of is that DHH said is that basically they're having, I think, 40% margins uh, for the business. So clearly they're making a profit by the rates that they're charging, exactly. you know, for, for, yep. for providing the services. So, right. you know, there's, uh, but... Again, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like when you have dynamic workloads and, or if you just don't have enough bodies to provide redundancy to make sure that your systems stay up. Like if you're yep. the only, per like you're saying, you're only a person who knows how this database is set up. Well, that's a big risk. And being mm -hmm. able to outsource it to someone else is very beneficial. So I totally agree with that. Um, so also wanted to kind of shift and talk a little bit about here um, monitoring and uh, observability. So, you know, you've got your thing deployed. Um, like, how do you monitor uh, the state of this is an interesting question because Honey Badger does, in a certain sense, monitor states of applications and mm -hmm. reporting and logging of things, exceptions. So, how do you monitor uh, Honey Badger? We have a, a whole lot of monitoring in place. Um, we use internally a, a number of things. One, we use a lot of CloudWatch. So we have, since we have all of our stuff hosted at Amazon, it's it's really you know the default really to have logs yeah, show yeah. up in CloudWatch and metrics show up in CloudWatch. So we use a lot of CloudWatch alarms, and so we have Terraform, you know, used to set those up. So for example, if we have, uh, let's say, we're running Karafka. Uh, it's the, that's the like sidekick, but it's using Kafka as the, as the transport rather than Redis. Um, so if you have a, a Kafka task running an ECS, it's going to send out some logs and it's going to, you know, take up some memory. It's going to take up some CPU on the, on the ECS task. And so we have a Terraform config that tells this task, like go and, and use this image and put these environment variables in the environment and oh by the way create a cloud watch alarm that watches the cpu and watches the memory and then sends alerts over to this sns topic which then forwards over to our slack channel so that's a lot of what we have at honey badger 
since we are building right now a structured logging tool, we're also working on you know pulling that stuff into our own internal instance of that structured logging tool so that we can you know try our own dog food. Uh, but predominantly, I think CloudWatch logs and and metrics and alarms is is what we use to monitor. Okay, so like Honey Badger, so I'm using CloudWatch logs as well for monitoring disk space and CPU usage and a number of other things. Mm -hmm. And it's going back to what I was saying is that when you buy the commodity parts, like just get an EC2 instance that's cheap, when you ask them to do extra things, it starts getting more expensive. That's actually one of the higher cost things, the monitoring that I'm paying for in my AWS bill. Yep. So I've been kind of thinking, you know, I should really look look into maybe setting up Prometheus or Grafana to monitor things. You know, I'm just been mm -hmm. thinking different ways I could potentially monitor that. It would take an investment of my time, but it could save some money by doing that. Um, but I'm kind of asking this because I was hearing some of the things that you were mentioning about Honey Badger and your uh, the Insights product. Mm -hmm. So could you explain kind of what that can offer? And I'm not saying it's a replace for cloud metrics or whatever, but could you explain in your own words kind of what the Insights, do you call it a product? Do you call it? A module, what, what do you call it for Honey Badger? Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of unsettled on what exactly we're calling it, if it's a product or a module. But yeah, you can think okay. of it as as a module because it's going to be inside of Honey Badger, right? It's not something that's completely okay. separate. Yep. And that, that's actually one of the selling points of it is we, we, we do want to bring that CloudWatch Insights because uh, there's a, so the, in, in Amazon, there's CloudWatch as a product. And then that product has a bunch of features like CloudWatch metrics and CloudWatch logs, and there's even CloudWatch logs insights. <laughs> so we're not 100% original in this name. Uh, we we do want to take some of that functionality and, and bring it to our Honey Badger customers in the form of insights as the module or product, however you want to call it. And that's really a way to, to send in your structured logs. So let's say you have a Rails app that's spitting out you know logs for each request, like the duration and the path and the parameters that were used. And if just you basically your standard up, Rails like yeah. production dot log, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Now, if you choose to put that into a JSON format using like the LogRage gem or the Semantic Logger gem, if you put that out in a structured way, and then send that over to to Honey Badger Insights, now you can analyze, query that data. So now you can see, oh, what is how, how many requests am I doing, or what is the average duration, or you know, give me the duration over time, right? And you can chart out what's the time series data for that. So uh, that's a way to, you don't have to set up that additional monitoring, right? Because it's already there in your logs and maybe you have uh, user signups, right? And so just take account of the number of times this particular route gets hit in my application based on the logs that I'm sending over. And now you've got, you know, activity stream happening that you can see a chart of your activity over time for your application. So our goal with Insights is really to kind of bring that richness experience that you'd be paying for quite a bit in, in CloudWatch or you know even Datadog or Splunk or these other big guys that charge a heck of a lot of money you know, for doing these kinds of things. Yep. And bringing that kind of experience to developers who are using Honey Badger at a price point that's a bit more affordable and uh, with an experience that's not quite as complicated as sitting in the cockpit of AWS console, right? But but is you know more straightforward. We're going to give you a query language that 
is easier to use, you know? So that's, that's our goal. I still am not satisfied with my configuration options that I've set up for the metrics in CloudWatch. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, why is it reporting like this? I have no idea what, but I'm too busy to like contact support and say, help me figure yep. this out. But yep. oh. yeah, it's, it's so, so is, so insights is designed specifically for log to consume logs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you, so, so you know, we could we have you, a good, sorry, go ahead. I said, we have a good story today for monitoring exceptions and, you know, for monitoring the, the uptime, like we do an external ping to make sure your site is still up, you know, and watching your yep. cron. So one, one gap that we have in our product today is that we don't know operationally what's happening with your, with your application during normal load, right? During when you're not having errors. And that's what insights is for is like, what, you know, how's the performance? Like how, how long is the view rendering taking? How long is the, you know, the entire duration of the request taking and uh, how many requests am I getting that sort of thing? Um, to, to mo help monitor that. So I've used different logging products where you, you send them your logs and then you can peruse the logs. Is there any vision like in the future of applying certain metrics like extracting, extracting I'll say pre-extracting knowledge from the logs to like give indications of something I, you know, like request per minute or some, some type of metric like that. Yep. So our goal was to, to be able to provide you the flexibility to set that up, you know, so you could say, what kind of metrics am I interested in? So maybe it is so request I could, per minute. So you I could like in, make can, a dashboard can, or something of that nature. Exactly. Exactly. You write okay. a query that says, okay, ask my log. Give me all the requests and now give me a count of the requests and group that by minute. Okay. Now I've got a time series and now, okay, push the button that says chart that for me. And okay, it looks good. Push the button says add that to a dashboard. And so now I always have my request per minute chart right there. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what, what we built with insights. Okay. And then hopefully not here today, but hopefully soon we'll be, that's a pre-made dashboard ready for you. We say, oh, we see you're sending in Rails uh, application data. We know you're going to want requests yeah. per minute. You know, yep. here's a here's a chart that does it. There you go. And so, what about like system-based metrics? And I'm thinking about like we were using the example of CPU usage. Mm -hmm. Is there any way of tracking that within Insights? So whatever you can put into a, a log, like we can, we can do metrics okay. based on that. So our, our plan, so eventually we want to have an agent that you can install that will then report Right, that. right, right, right. Okay. But today, like we're using Vector a lot. So Vector is a tool that um, can do a lot of uh, taking in data from one place and shoveling it to another place. And so you can, for example, if you're running collect D on your servers and it's collecting all your CPU stats and memory stats and stuff like that. You can actually ingest that into Vector running locally as an agent, and then Vector can package that up as a log and send that to Insights. And then we can say, okay, here's the CPU stat for that minute. Here's the memory stat for that minute. And then we can, yep, chart some metrics based on those, you know, metrics as logs, basically. Okay. So it's just basically, you, at this point, you know, it's up, can, it's up to the person, uh, you know, using the Insights account to 
say, all right, what do I want to measure in my server? You know, I want CPU, I want disk space, you know, whatever metric you want to use, you put that mm -hmm. in a log format and then send it up to Insights to yep. get yep. information. Okay. All right. Yeah, and really, like, I think our, our philosophy really has been with Honey Badger is, like, we want to give developers every tool they need to make sure their, their application is healthy in production, right? That their customers are having a good experience. And Insights is just the latest step in that. It's like, okay, well, what, you know, I should pay attention to what my server is doing. You know, I should pay attention to what it's, uh, what the, what requests are coming in on, on a normal basis, you know? Um, and just, you know, having that awareness as a developer, I think, gives you, brings you into this realm of DevOps, you know, this grand rainbow land of, you know, knowing how your application is performing in production is really, is really the whole goal. All right. Now I should mention as, as I'm sitting here thinking about the discussion we're having, um, this is not sponsored at all. There's been no, <laughs> I just thought it would be great to get Ben on the show because I've been hearing him talking on his podcast about insights. And I was like, oh, and I was thinking different ways I could use it. So there's really just an interest for me. And I invited him to come on. There's no sponsorship at all, even though it is. <laughs> I may think that way based on how the discussions is going, but I'm generally interested in this and seeing what the, what the product can do. So before we wrap up, kind of what would you say in, in terms of like closing statements? Why is it a good idea for developers to know more about operations. Yeah, back back a long, long time ago when I was early in the web dev days, I thought, you know, it's it's good to know uh, the basics of programming, like what happens down a few layers. Like it's good to know the networking stack. It's good to know what why C is the way it is, you know? And I think um, I think my, my opinion on that has matured over time. I think at the time I was like, it's good to have the fundamentals, right? Today, I think that's probably less important that you get into those details, but I think the idea of having a notion of what the fundamentals are, like why, why is running N plus one queries a bad idea? You know, why is uh, having, taking multiple API requests inside of a request without putting that in the background, why is that a bad idea? You know, just, just these basics of understanding the environment that you're in. And so we can understand those kinds of things as developers. And I think understanding how is my application performing? Like, is helpful for making sure you deliver a great experience to your customers. Like, we we feel strongly like we we want everyone who uses our product to be happy using it, right? We don't want them to experience bugs. We don't want them to experience slowdowns. And the only way we can know that they're not encountering bugs and not encountering slowdowns is if we have some monitoring there to tell us what's going on. Otherwise, you know, we're just flying blind. And we don't, we don't want to fly blind. We want to provide a great experience. And uh, so we want to know what that experience is. And I think that's really our whole driving force at Honey Badger is we want to be the tool that allows you as a web developer to say, I'm providing a good experience to my customers because I know they're not encountering bugs left, right, and center. I know they're not encountering long page load times because I'm seeing that, you know, in the, in the charts and in the alerts that I'm not getting right from Honey Badger. So that's that's really our goal is like, we believe very much in, in serving our customers at the best we can and helping our customers serve their customers in, in the same way. Yeah, and you know, I can attest, you know, sometimes I get something coming through on Honey Badger and it's any other, you know, log alerting exception mm -hmm. tool and I can respond immediately. I can see, okay, what was the user that this happened to? I can reach out to the user and say, hey, we just got notified that you encountered an error. 
we were looking at is because of XYZ reason. And some people are super amazed. It's like, holy cow, how did he know that? <laughs> right. Yeah. That this happened. Yeah. So, but they're very appreciative, even though some of them may think it's a little bit creepy, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't really think it matters um, to what what tool you use. I mean, there are so many different options out there, and we we have plenty of competitors in the space, and there are plenty plenty of options. But I think really the the message that I would like to share is like use something, right? Find yeah, a way yeah. to make sure that you're monitoring your stuff so that you're providing a great experience. I mean, it as a developer, it sucks if no one's using your product. Right. That is the worst feeling in the world. Right. You build this thing and nobody uses it. That's terrible. Uh, but I, I think also what sucks is that when you have this thing and people are using it, but it's broken for them. And yeah. uh, I think, you know, it, it's, that's, that's the message that I like to share is like, Hey, you should care that <laughs> the people using your product, you should care what kind of experience they're having with it. All right. So, um, Thanks, Ben. This has been great. So where can people find out more about uh, the work that you're doing? So I'm on various you know, social networks. I'm on uh, Twitter as Stimpy, S-T-Y-M-P-Y. I'm on Mastodon. I'm Ben Curtis at Hacky Derm. Uh, but if you go to honeybadger.io and you hit the About Us page, you will see all my contact deets. You can, if you forget any of the things I just said. All right. Sounds great. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, please be sure to like and subscribe if you like this content. And be sure to visit uh, rubberduckdevshow.com where you can find the links for all the content that we discussed here today, as well as go ahead and sign up for the uh, email list there because we send out every week the notification of the new shows as well as other content we're producing because we're taking the long form shows and putting them into shorter clips of about 10 or 15 minute videos. So you can enjoy those as well. I hope everyone had a, excuse me, I hope everyone is going to have a great week. And until next time, happy coding. Happy coding. <laughs>